everybody. You're listening to Christ Fellowship based in Northeast Florida. We believe that we are broken by life, healed by his grace, and lifted together. Join us as we dive into God's word together each week. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 19, and we are going to continue our discussion on the family. We began it last week simply addressing that the family was the first thing that God established in the Garden of Eden as far as a command. It was the first positive command that he really gave Adam and Eve as a family. He looked at the tree and said, don't eat it. And then he made Adam and Eve and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The reality is, is that if there is anything that Satan despises the most, it is the family. He doesn't like it. He does not enjoy it because at its core, the family is a direct reflection of the fullness of the grace of God. And that does not mean you have to be married in order to count as family and reflect the grace of God. Strictly speaking, family is you and whoever you are related to. And then beyond that, whoever you are intimately close with in the body of Christ. That is the family and how God uses it to reflect you. And so we are going to continue to deal with this today. We will deal with Satan's methods and assaults on the family and how we combat that. But the book of Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1, now it came to pass... When Jesus finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answered and says to them, Have you not read? Now here's the interesting part. A lot of us might not know this, but if you're a Pharisee, you're very intelligent. You didn't get to be a Pharisee unless you showed scholastic ability. And even beyond that, every little boy, every little girl would have to go to school and they would have to learn the first five books of the Old Testament. They would have called it the Pentateuch. In the Torah, we just call it the first five books of the Old Testament. That is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those very, very enjoyable books where you fall asleep most of the time. If you try and read them as you read through, this was this person's son, this was this person's son, this was, and then you just skip over it and move on to the interesting parts, like the flood and all those other fun areas in the book of Genesis. But if you were a little Jewish boy or a little Jewish girl, you had to go to school. And you would memorize the first five books of the Old Testament so that you could quote them backwards and forwards. And if you showed an aptitude for it, meaning if you got it really easy, if it came easy to you to be able to understand those, then after that you would go further into rabbi training school. Then you'd have to memorize the rest of the Old Testament. From start to finish, from cover to cover, anybody who was a Pharisee would have had anybody walk up to them during their training and scholasticism and would have begun to quote a text from scripture and just stopped at random and the Pharisee would have been able to pick it up from where it was and finish the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book and just keep on going and going and go. They could go from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, off of memory. So when they come to Jesus and they're testing him, they know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They're not questioning what it says. They're trying to mess with him and see, can we find a place where Jesus misspeaks? So Jesus looks at them and kind of gives them a backhanded compliment. Have you not read? 
Well, of course we read, remember not the whole thing. Have you not read and understood really what he's getting at? Have you actually understood what it is you're reading? And he answered them and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two flesh, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. That's where we get that phrase that we say at the end of weddings. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Look at the question that they're asking. Jesus, can you divorce your wife? Can you divorce your husband? And Jesus says, no. No exceptions. No. Can't divorce your wife. Can't divorce your husband. Have you not read? He who made them male and female. One flesh. I'm putting them together. The only one that gets to separate them is God. Now I'm going to get into this in a little bit. Let me tell you very quickly so you don't start feeling like I'm trying to beat people over the head with guilt and shame and condemnation. And I'll deal with this a little bit more in my sermon. But please keep in mind, if you don't know my backstory, most of you do at this point, that I am divorced. Christina is my second wife. I'm her first husband. She's my second wife. I'll get to it in just a bit how God redeems things and makes things all new again and whole again. But this is not the issue that we're getting to today. Then he said to them, why did Moses? You know anything about the Old Testament? You know that the Pharisees held Moses in the highest regard. You did not argue with Moses. You did not say anything against Moses. In fact, if you were going to rank people, in importance in the Old Testament, you would absolutely have Moses at the top of ranking. Whatever he says trumps anybody else in the Old Testament. Prophet Abraham didn't matter. Moses stands at the top because Moses is the one that went up on the mountain, spent 40 days with God, received the Ten Commandments. Moses is the one who pens the first five books of the Old Testament because while he's up there, God tells him, get a scroll and start writing down. In the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth, and I was the one who was over the face of the... And he says, write down from all of this and I'm going to have you chronicle everything from here until you enter the promised land. So Moses is preeminent. And so when they look at Jesus, they say, why did Moses? They're basically asking him, are you higher than Moses? Why did Moses command? Now that's an interesting word because we have the Ten Commandments, don't we? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, I'm sorry, thou shalt not murder. We get that one mixed up a little bit. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet. On and on, do not have any other gods before me, don't make any idols for yourself. All these commandments, and then it says, thou shalt not commit adultery. I don't see anywhere in that series of Ten Commandments, command being the key word where Moses says, Go ahead and put away your wife. Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts. The only biblical reason for a divorce is if someone's heart is so hard that God cannot get through and form them into who he's asking them to be. The only reason, I'm going to get to the part where Jesus says sexual immorality in a second. I'm going to mess that part up for all of you as well today. But the only reason that Jesus shows that Moses permitted, not commanded, Pharisees. Why did Moses command Jesus? The only reason he permitted was because of the hardness of your hearts. 
that he allowed the permission of the divorcing of your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. His disciples said to him, this is the wisest thing the disciples ever said, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. You understand that marriage is difficult. It is not exactly the easiest thing. In fact, when we come to the beginning, Jesus, as he is in the garden crafting everything, as that triune God is there putting all of it together, he says, I'm going to make a man, I'm going to make a woman. I'm going to bring them together, and I'm going to make them one flesh. And the best that I can give you as an example to illustrate this is if you've had two pieces of construction paper. You ever meet that ornery kid in elementary school? That was me. But when it was time for art class, you would go and grab two pieces of construction paper. And the teacher's up there trying to teach you how to draw a sun and how to draw a landscape and how to draw all these other things. And he's over there with his little ADHD or she's over there with her ADHD and fidgeting. And she or he takes one piece of construction paper and another piece of construction paper. And then they go and grab not the glue stick. You want to make sure that sticks the Elmer's glue. And then you come over and you squirt that thing all over one piece of construction paper. And then you take the next piece of construction paper and you don't lay it on top. You slap it down on the glue. Glue splatters everywhere. But most of it is stuck in between those two pieces of construction paper. And then if they're really ornery, they start rubbing it together. They try and pick up both pieces and kind of walk. Someone's looking at you, Susan, like you might have done this when you were the ornery kid in, in, in school. Rub those two pieces together and you just let it sit and then all of a sudden the art teacher comes over and looks at that child and looks at the glue all over the paste. There's probably glue on their face because this is also probably the same kid that used to eat paste. Anyways, moving all over their face and say, what have you done? I glued two pages together. That wasn't the assignment. We're supposed to be drawn. What are you doing? And the student says, I'll go ahead and pull them apart. When he rips them apart, they're still stuck together. Might have ripped some of them apart, but when he rips those two pieces apart, the glue has settled in between them so surely. And those two pieces of paper are so frail that when you rip them apart, part of one color is stuck on one page and part of the other color is stuck on the other page. You understand that when God says, I'm going to go ahead and be part of this marriage and I'm going to join this man to this woman and I'm going to make them one flesh, that is what happens. You become so securely fused to the other person, even if you don't like them. Even if you don't enjoy them, even if you've never liked them, even if all they do is annoy you, you are so securely fused to that person that no matter what you do, if there is ever a separation in the marriage, even if it doesn't end in a legal divorce, if there is ever a separation in the marriage, it will leave both parties torn asunder in pieces with parts of themselves stuck to the other person. That's why God says, don't even try and separate this. Don't take the time to try and go and file for a divorce. I'm the one who puts it together at the beginning. I'm the only one that's going to be able to separate this. I like that God says what I've joined together, let no man separate. You want to know what's interesting? That means God does have the authority to separate it. But in nowhere does he ever say that it's going to be 
well, I'll just go ahead and take the glue off. No, there is still a tearing asunder when a divorce occurs. There is still a breaking of both parties when a divorce occurs. Preacher, does that mean we can go ahead and get a divorce? I'm not sure. That part's between you and God, and I'll get you to how you get to that. But please hear me when I say this. When the Bible says God hates divorce, it is not something that anyone in any capacity who says that they love God and are trying to serve Him should ever seek. And we'll get to that in a minute. It is not a part in any capacity outside of deep, extenuating circumstances that anyone should ever seek. The only reason that you should ever seek it is if there is such a hardness of heart in the other person that there is no hope to bring it back together into a reconciliation. And then and only then may you go to God and request Notice what I said. You don't get to go ahead and just on that file for you get to go to God and request. God, can I be divorced from my spouse? Can I? May I? And only God gets to answer that. You cannot go to the justice of the peace. You cannot go down to a courthouse. You cannot go to your pastor or someone who you think is more spiritual for you and ask them, can I divorce my spouse? They cannot answer that for you because only God is the one that can give a finality of answer saying, I will permit, not command, not demand, not any of I will in this case permit, but be aware it comes with a very deep, steep cost to both the divorcer and the divorcee. No matter how the abuse of the marriage is, no matter how awful the marriage is, even if it's a scenario where there needs to be a divorce, because whoever it is who's the abuser is refusing to reconcile to God. Their heart has become so hard that God cannot reach them, God cannot touch them, God cannot begin to mold them because they are so staunch in their refusal to listen to the voice of God that they refuse to become what God has asked them in that marriage. Only then can someone go to God and say, God, may I have a divorce? And you want to know how your heart is not hard in that situation to find out if God will really grant it to you is if you're willing to hear him say no. Because if the only reason you're going to God, I'm not saying the marriage is good and you're just looking for a way out. I'm talking about if it's the worst of the worst, everything is bad, everything is awful, everything is legitimately dangerous and keep something in mind. It is a foolish thing that the church has done when there have been abusive marriages with domestic violence and they have sent wives and children back to an abusive husband which normally statistically ends in death. That is stupid of the church. Well, we can't go ahead and have divorce and we want to keep everything looking good so you just go home and let's put your life in danger and let's put your kid's life in danger. Wrong. If that is the case, the church ought to be the one assisting to find a way to shelter, to hide the abused parties and protect them while God works on the abuser. But keep something in mind. If it is that bad and you're in a situation where you are allowed to go to God and request a divorce from Him, the only way you're going to know is if he's actually said yes to you, is if your heart is soft enough to hear him say no. If your heart is soft enough to hear him say, 
I've still got life in this thing that I can work on. You might not see it. I've still got something that I can bring about in here. I know it seems like their heart is hard. I know it seems like they're resisting me, but let me explain something to you. They are not as far gone as you feel. And I understand you're reaping all the benefits of their abuse and their trauma and everything else that's going on in this scenario. And I understand it feels like you're in hell and there's no hope, but let me explain something to you. I am telling you I'm working on their heart right now. They are not so hard. And for that reason and that reason alone, the answer is no. You might go back to God after many years later or maybe after months later and ask him for a divorce again and he might say yes at that point but do not ever go and pursue a divorce because the cost is devastating God even gave Israel a certificate of divorce that's how I know divorce is not sin remarrying is the sin not necessarily as a blanket aspect. The remarrying is the part that involves the adultery. God's the part that we get confused on because we try and figure out, well, am I allowed to remarry? How do I go about remarrying? Is there a biblical way to be remarried? Yes, there is, and we'll get to that. And let me say this. Even if you were divorced and you did the divorce the wrong way and then you got remarried the wrong way, keep something in mind. The blood is sufficient to cover and redeem every single sin that you and I can commit. All it requires is a humble heart and repentance. Now that doesn't mean divorce the new spouse, go back and find the other spouse, have them divorce, so let's commit two sins so we can fix this first. That's not the idea. The idea is that when things get so twisted up and it feels like I've done something that God didn't want, keep something in mind, there's always grace. Keep something in mind, there's always mercy. The only requirement to receive the mercy of God is simply I'll take it because God only gives things into things that are open to receive what he's got to give so if you've been divorced did it wrong got remarried did it wrong keep something in mind there's still forgiveness and grace at the cross there's no scarlet letter that needs to be branded on your heart that you walk around for the rest of your life no wrong once god has said i forgive you i've removed it there is no sin there is no stain there is no shame anymore in this capacity it is done don't go running back into history trying to dig it up and make yourself feel bad don't go running back and buying into the devil's lie saying well you've messed this up you've been divorced you're just damaged goods you can never do anything for god ever again you are useless you're thrown that is not the case god is able to use any and every person no matter how messed up they are provided they always come to him with the same attitude that david had when he said lord against you and you alone have i sinned this is right after by the way david killed his best friend so that he could sleep with his best friend's wife while he already had a wife so he's committing adultery now he's committing murder now he's trying to hide it because she got pregnant with his kid and he looks at god and has the audacity to say lord against you and you only have i sinned had i been bathsheba not to be stereotypical but have you ever seen a Jewish couple argue? The wife is good. Oh, she knows how to get around every single argument. It is like a haggling market when it comes to that argument. The husband comes in and he starts setting his case. And he starts making a very good case. And the wife just goes right in there. And she begins to turn everything around and show him why. He's, had I been Bathsheba, I would have gone over to the kitchen and grabbed my cast iron pot and said, Who'd you sin against? Lord, I'd be David walking away. Lord, against you and you only. I'm about to die confessing my sin to you, God. Lord, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. You want to know how I know that God did not cast David out? Not because he stayed king. That's not how I know that God kept David. 
in his heart. How God still held a close relationship to David. You wonder how I know? Because from Bathsheba came Solomon. The wisest king that ever lived. I love when people try and say, well, when David screwed that up and that was everything, he messed it up. That's why he couldn't build the temple because he was a man of murder. He was a man of blood. No, David was a man of blood because he was the one busy setting the foundation of peace so that when his son came after him, they wouldn't have to worry about their enemies coming in and destroying the temple. And God would have a place of rest with his people where they could worship him without fear of their enemies. David was a man of war and worship. He wrote Psalms and then after he was done writing, Psalms, he went to war to defend his people. The blood that God said, I can't have you build the temple had nothing to do with the blood he spilled of Uriah's. It had everything to do that it was not David's place to build something for peace when he was supposed to be occupied with creating the peace through war. And Solomon, the child that comes from Bathsheba, the child of a murdered dad, the child of an adulterated woman is the one that God comes to in the middle of the night and says ask me anything and I'll give it to you he didn't say ask me for something good and I'll give it to you be smart about what you want to ask me and I'll give it to you he literally came to him and said your dad loved me so much Solomon David loved me so much Solomon and I know you're going to love me the same because you're already doing it so I'm going to come and instead of waiting till the middle of your life I'm going to come at the beginning of your life and the beginning of your reign Solomon you ask for anything you want Solomon and I will give it to you how many of you would like that from God? Solomon asked for wisdom, idiot. I would have asked for the power of flight. <laughs> God would have been like, all right, you can have the power of flight. I don't know how that's going to help you rule the kingdom. But there. Solomon looks at God and says, Lord, I'm supposed to take care of your people. I'm supposed to help to met out justice. I don't know how to do that in a way that honors you. Give me wisdom to tend to your people. And God looks at him and says, you could ask me for money. And when God says you could ask him for money and he wouldn't have been mad, man, go get a bigger checking account. You could ask me for money. You could have asked me for fame and notoriety. Instead, you asked me for something that was after my heart, the same way your father did. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you in full what you asked me for. And I'm going to give you all the riches that you could have asked me for. And I'm going to give you all the fame that you could have asked me for. Preacher, what's this got to do with divorce? Keep something in mind. Divorce is not just something that happens on a piece of paper. It is something that happens in the heart. And when David went and slept with Bathsheba, not only did he cause divorce between her and her husband, he caused divorce between himself and his wife and the two of them in consensual adultery. And out of that, in his repentance, God brings a king that he says, I'll give you wisdom. I'll give you power, and I'll give you all the money of the world. Do not tell me that divorce disqualifies you from anything that God wants to do with you when the heart becomes soft enough to repent to God. Preacher, why is divorce so bad then? Because of how it tears the person. The reason God hates divorce, it really has very little to do with this idea of, well, I said I do for the rest of my life. It really does not have everything to do with that. It has to do with that I went to God. And whether you want to or not, 
keep something in mind. Every time you get married or every time you go to a wedding, even if they say, well, we don't want God in this. We want him to have nothing to do with this. It doesn't matter what you want. God established it. And so every time there is a marriage, God is the one that is there fusing it together. The sad part is, after he's fused it together and made the two one flesh, everybody doesn't want God involved in the divorce. We wonder why we get so much. Why is divorce so? Because it rips the person to pieces. Did you know that psychologically speaking, when someone goes through a divorce, even if it was an abusive marriage, even if it was an awful thing, even if their life was in danger, even if their children's lives were in danger, when someone goes through a divorce, what happens in their brain and the chemicals that are released and what happens physiologically in their body as a response to all the emotions floating around in their brain is the same as when you lose a close loved one to death. Make no mistake, even if a divorce is necessary, even if God says, I will permit this divorce, even if God says, I am not happy about it, that person's heart is so hard, they have turned themselves away from me and will not relate, they will not respond, they will not relent, even though I'm granting the divorce, keep something in mind. No party will ever escape from a marriage through a divorce without the pain of death. It will always nearly destroy you. Because when you become so fused to something, it's a tear. And it's never a gentle tear. You ever seen those commercials where they're teaching you how to take the thing off drywall so that you don't ruin the paint and everything like that? I hate those things. You want to know why? Because they never work for me. I see people use them all. I see construction workers. They're using them. They're putting them up. They're hanging things up there. And then they go and take it off. And it comes off. And the drywall looks perfect. The paint is not even stained. I go over to it. And I'm like, all right, how do I do this? They say, just go ahead and pull down straight down. I was like, like this. And I start doing it. And they say, yeah, that's right. And as I'm pulling down, am I doing anything wrong? No. All right, keep going. What am I? Am I doing anything wrong? No. And as it finally comes off, snap, all the paint goes with it. I was like, what did I do wrong? It's not going to be like an expert coming up to that thing and pulling it off and the tape's intact and the, the paint's intact. It's going to take pieces of you with it. One flesh. Satan loves divorce. Because whenever it happens, it's always because of a hardened heart. And if he can harden the heart, then even though you're on your way to heaven, he can make you so embittered, so preoccupied, so broken, that you become incapable of responding to God. Preacher, I still tithe, even though when I went through the worst time of my life. Preacher, I still didn't. I didn't say you weren't going through the motions and honoring God. I didn't say God was angry at you. I didn't say God was displeased at you. I didn't say God was ashamed with you or God was embarrassed in you. Please do not misunderstand. If you go through a divorce, if you're going through a divorce, if you've been through a divorce, please do not think that there is anything in the mind of God where he looks at you with embarrassment or shame. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You are his beloved daughter and his beloved son. He draws excitement every time you talk to him. Even when you're having a bad day, even when you've messed everything up, he has 
has absolute pride every time he gets to interact with you. And even when you're on your way through the rest of the day, you've already had your prayer, or maybe you're going to pray at the end of the day or whatever it is, he's up in heaven showing off, telling the angels, gather around. That's my daughter, and I'm proud of her. That's my son, and I'm proud of him. But God, he just went through a divorce. But God, she just got rid of her husband. That's my daughter. That's my son, and I'm proud of them. You cannot ashamed God. You cannot make him embarrassed by how bad or how awful you think you have been. The only thing he looks on you is love. You want to know how I know that? Because he was willing to shed his blood just to be close to you. But he hates divorce because of what it does to his children. Even in people who aren't Christians, he hates divorce because of what it does to those around. You ever watched a divorce? You ever known someone who's gone through a divorce? Are they the only one that suffer from it? The whole family suffers. Why do you think it's an attack on the family? Because we think, well, it's divorce. We've got to stay together for the kids. We've got to make sure that this works out. Because the kid, and if we don't do that, the kids are going to suffer. Yes, they will suffer. Yes, it's not good. Yes, they're the ones that are probably going to receive secondarily the worst of it. The ones that get the worst of it, the husband and wife who separate from each other. The kids are second. But keep something in mind. Even if there's no kids there's going to be collateral damage. You've got relatives that get involved in it, not because they're trying to be nosy even. You might have good-natured relatives who are trying to keep their distance, not put it in your business, but they're also trying to support you and lift you up. It exhausts them. Don't feel bad about that. They're trying to lift you up while you're going through hell. Don't feel bad that they're getting... But keep something in mind. Divorce costs everyone close to the explosion. There is no escaping from it without the pain and sorrow and death that it brings into everything. God can come in and restore these things and heal them after the fact. But do not misunderstand. He will not protect you from the disaster that comes from a divorce. He might spare you so that it does not destroy you, but he will not get you out of it so that you do not have to deal with any of the consequences of it. Because he's the one that put it together. That's why Satan loves it. If I can just get that husband to not hear his wife. Sometimes men are dense. We just don't hear. Honey, can you do this? Honey, did you hear me? Can you, do, can you, can you take out the trap? I cannot tell you how many times Christina has come up to me and said, did you hear me? And I say, what? She's standing right next to me. I just asked you three times to do something. Well, I don't know what you said. I didn't hear you. Are you sure you said it three times? Maybe this is the first time you said it. Maybe you skipped saying it three times, and now you're just starting the argument so that you can get me to pay attention. Are you sure that's not? That's not really how the argument goes, by the way. It's usually just, I'm sorry, I didn't listen. To Did you hear me? I didn't even know you were there. Sometimes it's just husbands being dense. Sometimes I wonder if Satan is just getting permission to block the ears so he can start an argument. It's not every time, ladies, that it's Satan, all right? It's probably us just not paying attention to listening. So, you know, but, but just give us a little grace. Every now and then, once in a while, I'll be like, if we don't hear you, just be like, well, maybe the devil's just in the way and I'm not going to let him get the best of me and all that. Husbands, you ever notice wives just seem to not understand simple words? 
And I don't mean they're stupid or dumb. That's not, that's not the issue. The, the issue is not that, that I think that they're not intelligent. The issue is, is really best illustrated by what happened this morning. Ashley asked Connie how the music sounded during practice. And Connie said, sounded all right. What Ashley heard was the music sounded like crap. It was garbage. I can't believe that this is what we're going to use for worship today. I wish there was something better. And she starts panicking. She's like, well, all right means it wasn't good, Connie. What was it? And I had to chime in. Ashley, she's using the male version of the word all right. It was all right. It was, what's the definition of the word all right? It means it was all right. It was good. It was acceptable. It was enjoyable. It was, and what she heard, oh my goodness, did I not play the right chords? Sweetheart, what do you think of this color paint on the wall? Looks all right. You don't like it? I said it looks all right. I didn't say I don't. What do you not like about it? This is a good color. It accents the room. It's beautiful. It lightens up everything. I said it looks all right. Sweetheart, honey, come here. Can, can you tell me what you think of this dress? Yeah, it's good. Walk out. What is that supposed to mean? It means it's good. Oh, you don't think this looks very good on me? You wish I had something different that I was wearing? I know I'm illustrating the. I know gender roles is next week, but let me just. Let me explain something. Divorce does not just happen on a sheet of paper. Now, those are the funny examples. But men and women are different. We don't have a. We don't have the right to just chalk up our arguments to be indifferent. It is incumbent on us become intimate and aware of those around us. Even if we're single, when there's someone in my family that God has brought to me, it is incumbent on me to become as deeply associated with them as biblically proper. Why? Because without intimacy, there is no life, there is no growth. Single people, you are not less than. You are not second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Intimacy is just as important to your growth and the growth that you bring to others. But now let's just expand it out beyond just the husband and wife. When there's fights and we divorce each other in our hearts. You know how many marriages in this nation? Well, we stuck together and we didn't get divorced. Correct, but you live like you're strangers. Well, we don't even have any fights anymore. That's right, you don't have any fights anymore because you don't even talk to each other. You divorced each other in your hearts, even though on paper, but we're still married. You want to know what the actual definition of divorce is? Separation. That is the biblical definition of divorce. You want to know what the biblical definition of death is? Separation. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Well, Adam and Eve didn't die. Yes, they did. They separated themselves from God in that moment, and death was now a part of their life. Divorce is just separation. Death is just separate. Things die. Well, we stayed together for the kids. No, you didn't. You just stayed in the same household and shared the same bed as roommates so that the kids could have some semblance and some kind of pretend marriage together where mom and dad didn't really love each other but at least they were both there and listen don't don't misunderstand 
Obviously, it's better if mom and dad stay together, especially if it can be amicable. But keep something in mind. That's not actually what forms the children. What forms the children is when mom and dad come together in marriage and in love, exalting God and pour into their children. Not so that they can make little versions of themselves, but so they can make little versions of God. That was the whole point in the Garden of Eden. Fill the earth, not with little Adams and little Eves. Fill the earth with little versions that reflect the glory and the divinity of God. That's why whenever Tom is teaching, even though he's single, he is doing just as much as any father because he's taking the word and he's pouring into the people who are under him at that point and he is forming them with the word of God and helping them grow into the likeness and the fashion of God. Divorce. It causes death, even if it's not on paper. Now let's go back to marriage just for a moment. Preacher, what justifies a divorce? Nothing. Nothing justifies a divorce. Okay, then what's the right question? Preacher, what gives me permission to request a divorce from God? It's very, very specific. Because there's nothing that will justify a divorce. There's nothing where God will give you a blanket, go ahead and get divorced. No, the only thing that will give you a blanket anything is these are the circumstances or the bars that must be reached so that you can even go to God to request a divorce. And from there, then it's up to him. I've seen him say yes in circumstances that I thought still had hope. I've seen him say no in circumstances that I thought had no hope. That's why you do not trust a man or a woman just because they love God and love you, just because they're spiritual. That's why you don't go down to the courthouse and just fill out something so you can say, we're done with this. You cannot do it because you cannot see the heart of the person involved. It may have been dead for years, and God's the one that sees that, and he says, in this case, I'm going to permit in this case, I'm not going to, God, this thing is dead. No, it's not. I can still breathe life into this thing. Then what are the circumstances in which I even have permission to request a divorce from God? One of those is really, really easy because Jesus says sexual immorality. Now, a lot of us growing up, myself included, have heard sexual immorality. If they go ahead and have an affair, then you can go ahead and divorce your wife. What a stupid thing, first of all. That's not what it said. And first of all, if someone does have an affair, that is not a blanket statement to go ahead and divorce your spouse. It might be a point of permission to request from God a divorce, but it is not a point where you can just say, well, I don't have to be with you anymore. Now, I'm not saying if someone's had an affair, you've got to hop back in bed with them. I would have them get tested if that happened before I'd even consider something along those lines. But the reality is an affair is not a disqualification of the fullness of marriage. Also, it is not the only example of sexual immorality, biblically speaking. Well, preacher, what are some other ones? Okay, I'll give you some real easy ones. We just got affair out of the way, right? How about pornography? Well, that's a real easy one because you're bringing someone else into the marriage. That's easy. We understand, and normally it's men that struggle with that, but there are some women that struggle with that too. But there's sexual immorality. You understand the biblical definition sexual immorality it's not just lust it is the misuse of intimacy you understand how much deeper that goes the misuse of intimacy. It's obviously a misuse and abuse of intimacy that God has established between a man and woman. If someone goes out and has an affair or if someone's looking at pornography, that is a very easy way to look at it. But how about those 
romantic comedies sometimes. Now, I like those. I enjoy those. I enjoy a good gallon of ice cream while I'm sitting there under a down blanket in the freezing cold AC of my house while I watch a Reese Witherspoon movie of Sweet Home Alabama, which is one of the greatest chick flicks of all time. However, and I get it, not all guys like that, and I call them wrong. Girls have a tendency to like romantic comedies a little bit more. You want to know why? Because it paints a dramatic, beautiful, unrealistic image of intimacy. So when you have women, that doesn't make watching a romantic comedy a sin, by the way. Otherwise, I'd have a different type of sin that I have to struggle with. I like those shows. I like watching The Bachelor. I like watching The Bachelorette. It is just trash for the soul. It is fantastic. I'm so glad. But there's a reason why women have a tendency to like those. Because normally what's happening on the screen has a tendency to be the absence of what's in the home. And that is the husband that once pursued her romantically when they were dating has just let it fall off. And I'm not saying it doesn't adapt and it doesn't change. You as a husband shouldn't still be doing the same things you did as a teenager. First of all, hopefully you've got more money so you can do a little bit nicer of a date. But it used to be a, a husband, when he was just a boyfriend, would plan a date out. Then once you get married, the husband stops planning dates. Where do you want to go for our anniversary? Why don't you plan it, sweetheart? I don't want to plan it. You've got the money. You just go ahead and pick where we go. Let's just... Whatever happened to, I'll plan the date. You don't even have to worry about it. Just go ahead and buy something nice for yourself to wear. We're going to go out to a restaurant. I'll surprise you when we get there. And then we'll go, when's the last time a husband planned that for his wife? It's pretty rare because we only do that during the dating phase. And that's usually indicative that what ends up happening in the household is the communication stops. Oh, here we go again. Men are all about sex. Women are all about communication. Wrong. Both of them are all about intimacy. And keep something in mind. For the most part, men and women both like sex and communication the same amount. They just operate differently in the approach. We assume that because the approach is different, then that must mean the other person's not as interested in the part of intimacy that I like most. That's not accurate. We get so bent out of shape thinking that because we're so different, that doesn't mean that... Let's come back. Most of the time when you see a romantic comedy on TV, the woman becomes entranced because what she's seeing is the communication that she used to get from her husband. And there starts becoming an improper longing for, I miss that. It's not wrong to miss that and to demand that of your husband, but when, when the longing gets placed in another spot, because sexual immorality is not just about sex. It is the depth and abuse of intimacy. So before we get so bent out, well, you're looking at porn. What kind of TV are you watching? Well, you went out and had an affair. What kind of books are you reading? Well, preacher, that's not as bad. I didn't know we got to grade sins all of a sudden. When did we become God? The reality is, is that when you begin to use or misuse or abuse or misplace any aspect of intimacy with another human being other than your spouse, it has become sexual immorality. How do I know? Because what do they say? I'm glad there's no kids in here today, but one of the oldest sayings that I've ever heard when it comes to sex is conversation is the best lubricant. 
You see where I'm going with that? All of it has to do with the intimacy between a man and a woman. And it's not just all about sex. That is the apex of feeling. But the point of it is that you would be fully bare before your spouse. Not just in clothing, but in the depth of your soul so that they can see into the brokenness of you. You can see into the brokenness of them. Not abuse it, but see where you need to pray for them. Carry them to God. They see your brokenness and carry you to God. And through that, not only do two become one flesh, but two become whole and holy. All of this from sexual immorality? Oh, it's so much deeper than just, I can't believe you had an affair. I can't believe you look at porn. All of it, when it is a misplacing of what is due only to your spouse, whether it's the conversation, whether it's the emotion, whether it's the affection, whether it's the enjoyment, whether it's just sitting together to be in each other's company, all of that when it is misused for either self-gratification, even if it's with your spouse, by the way, you understand you can use your spouse to get what you need out of them in intimacy and just say, well, I need this. I don't care if they get anything. That is also sexual immorality. When you use the intimacy of your spouse to satisfy you greedily rather than it being a self-sacrificing thing. Anytime you misuse that, the bar is actually pretty low to hit sexual immorality, isn't it? That's a low. Why do you think God said, no, you, you might have permission to ask me for a divorce? But I don't have to grant it. Preacher, what makes God grant the divorce? When the other person is so hard. When the other person is so stone cold in the depths of their life. That God himself says, because he does not override free will. There's nothing left. Now, does that mean anything's too impossible for God? No. Does that mean that God cannot bring life back into the most desperate and desert of places? Obviously, he can do that. I do not mean to diminish that. But what I do mean is that God is such a respecter of the free will he has endowed to every man, woman, boy, and girl that there may come a point where God looks at how stiff-necked and hardened the other person is, that he will then look at the one who is making the petition of him and saying, you can be free. That is a high bar to get to. See, it's low to get to. God, can I have a divorce? Because all it requires is the other person to be a broken human. Guess what? You're a broken human. It's a pretty easy bar to get to, to get to the point where you can ask God for a divorce. It's hard to get to the part where he says, yes, because it requires your heart in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the brokenness, it requires your heart to be so soft that God can do with you whatever he needs and the other person's heart to be so hard that they are deadened to themselves to God. Do you understand how difficult that is? Most of the time, in the midst of pain and chaos, both people have hardened themselves. Both people have made themselves so stiff-necked. And in the event that both of them are so hard in and of themselves, then neither of them can hear God clearly. And if that's the case that neither of them and can hear God clearly, then any answer that you think you might have gotten from God is null and void. Because the only time he grants the divorce is when there is one party that is infinitely hard and the other party is infinitely tender to his voice. You understand how near impossible that is? You understand how near impossible it is to get to the place where God grants a divorce? 
it's almost as impossible as two people becoming one flesh. Preacher, are there any other circumstances? There are other circumstances in which you can request a divorce from God. It is when the other person, and keep in mind, it always requires the hardness of the heart. The prerequisite is always that person's heart is so hard that they don't respond to God anymore. But the other thing that God will permit the request in is when that person has abandoned their biblical role as a man or a woman. When they stop acting in capacity as how God had created them for the family, then he will permit you to request. What do I mean by that? You're going to have to wait till next week when I actually talk about gender roles. That's what we're going to get into. Now, let's talk about my divorce. My first wife was very, very broken. And I don't mean she was more broken than anybody else. I just mean that she was broken and the way it manifested was very aggressive. Right? I have scars on my body, not a lot, scars on my body from when she clawed at me in the midst of fights. She had hit me in the face before, to which I laughed at her. Great thing to do in the middle of a fight, by the way. Please do not think that I am painting her as worse than me. I did plenty of things that were just as abusive. I made myself look bigger than her. I yelled and screamed at the top of my lungs. I put holes in walls. Please do not think that all of a sudden, oh, it's poor little JJ being abused, and he didn't. No, that's not it at all. I retaliated in kind. Now, for a time, I did my best enduring the abuse, trying to understand, God, how do I love your daughter who's clearly broken? How do I lift her? How do I help her heal from this? And it was as everywhere I went, it just wasn't working. And I got so broken up in it and so angry and so embittered that I actually morphed into a response that was in kind to what she was doing. Please keep something in mind. There's two parties that were wrong right now. I didn't know what to do. Suicide was pretty tough at that time. It wasn't the worst it had ever been for me, but I was walking bridges at night thinking about which one would be the appropriate one to jump off of so that I could make sure I didn't just maim myself. I would go to dangerous parts of town where I knew they would do drug deals just hoping someone would offer me something so I could insult them and then get in a fight. Anything I could do. My dad calls me one night and says, you need to come home. I said, Dad, I'm not leaving my wife. I'm not divorcing my wife. He said, I didn't tell you to leave your wife or divorce your wife. I told you to come home. Both you and her are so volcanic right now, so chaotic right now, that even though you two probably still love each other, you have no avenue to get there because you're living in the middle of an explosion. You need to come home and be in a place where you are loved. She needs to go home to her parents, be in a place where she is loved, where both of you feel safe again so that things can settle and then go back together and begin to work on this. I get home. Things start settling down, and the relief I felt, waking up not having to be worried about if I was going to be belittled that morning, the relief I felt waking up not having to worry about was I going to be yelled at or made to feel stupid, In three days of being home, I called her and said I wanted a divorce. Guess whose heart was hard in that situation? I started going to counseling at my church. We couldn't file divorce because when you're in Ohio, you have to live there for at least six months. 
So we had about another five months and 27 days before we could do that. So I started going to counseling. And my counselor looked at me after about two or three weeks of us going through counseling, him hearing the whole story, and he looked at me and said, you need to go apologize to your wife. Tell her you're sorry and ask her to stay married to you. And I said, have you heard the stories I've given you for the last three weeks? Man, was I angry at him. You have the audacity. I did everything I could. I went to seminars without her. I went to counseling on my own. I did everything I could think of. I flew back here during our marriage so that I could be counseled by pastors who knew that they loved me and would give me biblical insight on how to love my wife. You mean to tell me I'm the one? That has to go back and apologize to her when she's the one that started this. And he looked at me and said, you're the husband. I said, what's that got to do with anything? He said, when Eve bit a piece of fruit, God didn't ask Eve about it. He said, even if you didn't start this thing, God's going to lay it at your feet to be the one who picks it up and takes responsibility. It took me about two or three weeks before my heart softened enough to go repent to her. Four-hour drive from South Cincinnati all the way up to Northern Ohio. And I had to look at her parents and apologize to them for how awful I'd been to their daughter. And I looked at her and I said I was sorry. I told her I was wrong to even ask for a divorce. I said, I'm not asking for us to move in. I think we're still too chaotic, but I'm asking, can we go to counseling together? And she looked at me and said, no. Still got five months, ten days before I can, or however long it was left, before I could even file for a divorce. So the next however many months I had, I began praying, God soften her heart. Because he looked at me and said, you don't get to have a divorce. He said, I'm glad you fixed it. I'm glad you repented. I forgive you. I'm not granting it to you. We get past the six months. At this point now, she is calling me. I'm doing much better as far as healthy. I'm still trying to figure out how to save my marriage. She is calling me, yelling at me, screaming at me, telling me to hurry up and file the divorce. And I am just refusing and refusing and refusing. And my pastor brings me to a passage. And he says, if the unbeliever is unwilling to stay married, you may release them. I said, well, I don't want to be the one who files a divorce. He said, there's no difference at this point. What had happened is that she was going to leave no matter what. And in fact, she already had. And since I can't override her free will, what he was telling me was at that point, son, you're soft. your heart is soft because you're still looking to save the marriage. But she's already run away. And you can't drag her back. Let me explain something. The day the divorce was finalized, that was the day when I actually felt the death of it. You would have thought I would have started the grieving process of going through death back when I first asked for it or when I was going through all the uh, other things and counseling and stuff. The death didn't start until it was over. And man, did it rip through me. And I thought to myself, I hate women. They're all liars. This girl told me she loved Jesus, and then we get into the marriage, and everything that I had asked her before we were married all of a sudden flipped on a dime. I refused to even consider marriage again. God had other plans. Because then I went into a Starbucks one time, and there was this beautiful young woman 
working behind the counter who I did not talk to for six months. I was like, I bet she gets hit on all the time. There's no way I'm saying anything to her. So for the next six months, I spent all my time talking to everybody else there. The baristas, everybody knew me. I could walk in. I had my order. All I had to do was walk up. They would have my cup ready for me. I would give them my card, and then I would just sit down, never talking to her. Then one day after six months, when everybody knew I wasn't a creeper, which now that I'm telling the story, it sounds like I was a bit of a stalker. I looked at her and said, do you eat lunch on Thursdays? She looks at me very oddly and says, yes. And I said, have it with me at Panera. And she didn't know what to say, so she said yes again, which is not really an answer because grammatically that doesn't work, but she was so confused. But that's how you date women, by the way. You confuse them so that they have to say yes to whatever. Do you eat lunch? We go and have lunch. I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm never going to get married again. I'm just going to go ahead and enjoy myself. I'm going to date. I'm going to be every stereotype of every villainous man I've ever seen in a movie. And when we sit down and we start eating, and I ask her, well, what do you do? The first thing she goes into is like, well, I'm in nursing school, and I just got back from a mission trip in Belgium where I got to use that, and I got to teach these kids all about Jesus, and I got to do these sports and all these things. And I'm sitting there eating my lettuce wrap with fury in my eyes. I was like, the first date I go on. And God sends me a girl who loves him, who just got back from a missions trip and wants to use her skills in medicine to help other people. Like, I was furious at God. I was like, you have the audacity to bring me someone so wonderful. I went home that night, and I just paced around the whole house, back and forth, and just back and forth. I was so angry because I liked her so much. I was like, this girl is insanely amazing. I don't know what to do. I was so mad. I was dealing with the cognitive dissonance between what had happened with my first wife and then this girl over here who I just started dating, and I'm back and forth, back and forth. And my mom just sat in the dining room looking at me with a smile on her face. She's like, what's wrong? I was like, she loves Jesus. She's like, well, what's wrong with that? I don't want her to love Jesus. Why not? Because the last one said she loved Jesus. Well, this one went on a mission trip. I don't want to talk about it, Mom. Back and forth. I don't know. What are you going to do? I'm going to call her again, of course. Have you seen my boys? Have you seen the way they run up to me and call me Dada? Have you seen my wife? Besides the obvious that she's way out of my league, and keep something in mind then, anytime you get married, it's out of your league. Just women settle, men marry up, plain and simple. There's no way around it. I apologize, women, that's you settled. Didn't matter who you picked, you were gonna settle because you're always the step up. Have you seen my wife? Have you seen how kind and gracious and patient she is? Have you seen how how beautiful she is? Have you seen how affectionate she is to me in a proper way, in public, that she wants to be? You want to know what I lacked in the first marriage? I could walk in the door and that first wife would look at me with scorn in her eyes, annoyed that I'd come home early from work. This time, when I come home from work, I am greeted by two sons that love me and a wife who just wants to be close to me. I didn't know that could happen. Now, here's the thing. It could have happened in my first marriage if I had softened myself and the other had softened herself. We were both too hard, and I went about trying to get a divorce in an improper way. Then I repented to God, 
and I tried to turn back time, basically, but he can't or refuses to override the other one's free will, and so I couldn't stop it. I might have started it the right way, but somehow it ended the proper way. And then when I was done repenting on the specifics of what I'd done wrong, and God started to restore me and put me back together, then he said, would you like me to introduce you to someone that I'm going to use to make you holy? Marriage isn't about making you happy. Family's not about making you happy. It's about making you holy before God. When he brought her to me, I do not know a lot of women, and this is not a slight at anybody. This is just about the grace God gave her. I don't know a lot of women that could survive a marriage where their husband was suicidal multiple times a day. I don't know a lot of women who could handle a marriage where the husband was so mentally broken because he couldn't reconcile the fact that he always wanted to kill himself, but in the same breath he had to preach the gospel of God that says you are valuable, you are desired by God, and then at the same time felt like he wanted to run and play in traffic until it took him, and at the same time was so broken inside with all of his emotions, unable to untangle them, that the only thing he could do was explode with rage. I don't know a lot of women who could have been sustained in that situation. And yet God gave her the grace. And now, despite the fact that I had been divorcing my second wife in my heart for about five or seven years, however long it was, because of how broken and hardened I was, God used her to soften me. I don't remember the last time I've thought about suicide. I don't remember the last time I felt so filled with rage, not anger. Anger's different. Anger is acceptable, but I don't remember the last time I'd been so filled with rage that I felt like I had to rip a door off his hinges. Marriage isn't about making you happy. It's about making you look more like the Father. And Satan comes running in and says, you're not happy. Don't divorce him on paper. Just divorce him in your heart. because we think it'll make us happy. And all the while, God is saying, I just want to make you whole. Divorce is Satan's favorite method of destroying a person because it doesn't even require the people to separate physically. It just requires them to separate spiritually. And all the while, God says, if I can get one of them to soften, I can bring this thing back to life. Because if I can get one of them to soften, I can breathe life into that person. And that person, like Paul says, will sanctify the other spouse who still is trying to be in the marriage. And through that first spouse that becomes softened and begins sanctifying the other spouse, there becomes hope and desperation on the Holy Spirit to then breathe life into the other person. are ever in a chaotic situation where there is danger first of all please understand I know what kind of marriage that feels like second of all you'll not hear me recommend a divorce to you but you will hear me recommend can we put you somewhere safe while God works on both of you and then you'll hear me 
as I say, I'm going to pray for you. My wife's going to pray for you. And whoever else you let know, and we're going to pray that God touches both your hearts because you're getting so broken inside that eventually you become hard if you're not already. And your abuser is so broken inside that they've become hardened, which is the whole reason they're abusing. Doesn't excuse it, but keep something in mind. We're not trying to fix people just so that we can make them feel good. We're trying to make people look more like the Father, because when we look like the Father, there is peace. When we look like the Father, there is hope. When we look like the Father, there's stability. When we look like the Father, there is strength. When we look like the Father, there's power. There is authority. And for some reason, God does not bring those beautiful, powerful, daunting traits out of a person outside of the family. He does not do these things at the White House. He does not do these things in Washington. He does not do these things in legislation. The only place that God desires to bring out power and authority and dominion and strength and stability and peace and a calmness is in the family. Because if he can structure the family like that, it will lift a nation.